With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, today is February 1st, uh, 2023. We've made it through January. And despite everyone calling doom and gloom and Bitcoin going to 10,000 or to zero in, in some cases, uh, we have risen. It is coming up. Uh, you know, we're 24,000 and, and, and rising. And it seems to be a relatively healthy crypto market, which is running the way that we see it most times. Bitcoin will lead the rally. Um, I'm not calling this a rally in any way, shape, or form, but Bitcoin is kind of leading. Uh, ETH is still a little bit quiet, but generally, if, if we are seeing a, some semblance of a rally, we'll, we'd see ETH and then the alts and everything else. Um, the reason I'm bringing that up today is that all of those alts and all of these companies are, uh, are actual companies. Um, they have backgrounds. They have people that are generally uh, invested in, in building them growing them, scaling them, and everything else. Uh, and most investors have no concept or clue as to what's actually behind these coins, behind these concepts, and behind these Web3 companies. So I'm really excited today because we have uh, Jeffrey from Galaxy, uh, rebranded from Galaxy Digital. I'll screw that up all the, the entire time during this podcast. Um, but really, you know, Jeffrey, you have a long history in m and and I think that too often um, people really focus on the VC side of things and not really understand what an acquisition um, or merger or acquisition is, especially in a space like this. Um, so with all of your experience, I'm really excited to have you here today. Um, but before we get into that galaxy, I really want to dive into a little bit of your history, if you don't mind kind of starting with, you know, your first exposures um, into kind of cryptocurrency blockchain technology, but also, you know, your, your work history prior to that, which is quite uh, studious. Yeah, for sure. And, and thank you for having me on the show, Jay. And so my name is Jeffrey Uba. I'm a director within Galaxy or Galaxy Digital, as I sometimes uh, misremember the, the actual name of my company. But it's great to be here and happy to start off with a little bit of an introduction uh, for myself. And so the thing that I would probably say, which is the, the core thread through my career, at least the later half of my career, is gaming in some capacity. And so I grew up as a as a gamer. I used to play Pokemon Blue on my Game Boy Pocket and Zelda and you know Need for Speed and GoldenEye and all these different games. And just noticed even back then that it was a place where I wanted to dedicate a good portion of my career just because of the sense of community that it can generate, but also the amount of engagement that you can produce. And so, you know, starting from the very beginning, grew up in Houston, Texas, traditional immigrant family story. My parents came from Nigeria, came to the U.S. in the, the late 80s. I was born uh, here in Texas, two younger sisters, and was fortunate enough to, to make it to Harvard for undergrad, where I studied the history and philosophy of science. And so, you know, a little bit of a, of a science geek, a little bit of a history buff at the same time. And, and from there, I think, you know, tried very hard to jump into the gaming industry directly by applying to different companies. Uh, one in particular, I remember, was Bethesda, which was acquired by Microsoft, actually, in 2020 for about seven and a half billion dollars. Unfortunately, was unsuccessful at that time and, and decided to, to go the more traditional uh, consulting route um, in that moment. But from there was, you know, quasi consultant for a number of years, went to business school at, at Wharton and, you know, decided then and there that I really wanted to, to learn the, the practice and, you know, the strategy around M&A and in particular, eventually getting to gaming 
M&A um, as a specific category. And so started my career at a bank in New York called Evercore, where I worked on a lot of different types of transactions, probably you know focusing a little bit more um, towards the TMT end of the spectrum. And then from Evercore, I moved over to PJT Partners, which is another New York-based uh, boutique bank, only working on gaming transactions. And so advising the likes of Sony Interactive Entertainment and um, Epic Games on some of their recent acquisitions. And so I guess the question is, what brings me here today? And it's really about marrying you know, my understanding and kind of my training when it came to gaming when it came to M&A in this Web3 space. And so, as you mentioned, Jay, it's it's very much an early innings um, type of opportunity where a lot of the major corporate actions are more around raising capital as opposed to going through full-on acquisitions. And so, you know, I see myself as being at the, at the ground floor for a lot of these companies that are very rapidly, you know, creating equity value for themselves and in many cases very rapidly destroying equity value for themselves as well so it's very it's been a very interesting um journey and trip i would say but, yeah and this is where like having your ten thousand hours and i know not everyone agrees with the malcolm gladwell thing but i absolutely subscribe to it there's no substitution for your ten thousand hours the successes failures lessons and learnings along the way to get to where you are today which is a highly volatile asset class that despite all success a company can still fail um, and so really understanding those, those, those gray metrics uh, that most people may not be able to read between the lines is absolutely why it's so imperative to have those 10,000 hours in, a, in an emerging asset class like Web3. I, I 100% agree. And I think that the, the, the critical insight that I've gained just being in this sector for about seven or eight months, I started at Galaxy Digital or Galaxy um, back in back in May of last year as everything was, was crumbling all around us, is that the business models themselves, part and parcel, resemble more traditional, quote unquote, web two business models in a lot of cases. And so, you know, when you're thinking about what is the path to profitability what are the unit economics? You can actually take some corollaries from the, the Web2 ecosystem or the Web2 marketplaces and extract and extrapolate um, from those insights to understand and value and determine whether or not you know certain transactions and certain acquisitions make sense on the Web3 end of the spectrum. So it's it's definitely something that you know I've relied on heavily to be able to evaluate some of these different opportunities. And and you know again you've been around a long, you know long enough not not trying to age you but you remember the days of of companies you know that had you know no revenue no IP no you know really almost no staff you know getting hundreds of millions of dollars valuation on on concepts because investors and, and companies like suddenly are caught flat footed as an emerging asset class appears and they need they they need something they need someone uh, to to be able to showcase that they have there and that's a very tough position to be in. Um, when when you're going, I'm buying a concept that may or may not come to fruition. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is the investors themselves and the capital allocators, they don't know what they don't know, and they are absolutely terrified of FOMO, right? And so they don't want to miss whoever the, the next Sorare might be, for example, or whoever the next uh, Axie Infinity before it crashed was, for example. And so as a result, you know, the the very strict amounts of diligence that they do conduct on some of these opportunities kind of sort of goes out the window if you understand who else is in, you know, the the, the team of folks that are investing into some of these properties. Yeah, that's a, that's a question I just have. And, and before we get into Galaxy here, you know, I always, uh, you know, I, I'm not an M&A guy. I've done, you know, enough to be dangerous and understand the, the language. Um, traditionally more VC-based. And, and generally in that case, I'm, I'm investing in the team. 
Um, the concepts, you know, at, at an early angel or, or seed phase, like, you know, they're going to pivot, you know, they're going to change, it's going to evolve. And so you want to make sure, are they coachable? Do they understand the larger concepts outside of just the scope they're in? Because if you have to shift, you have to pivot, you have to grow, expand anything else, you need the team to really be there. And that's a very different skill set uh, than looking at numbers um, on, on a spreadsheet. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And it actually makes my life very easy at Galaxy because I'm very focused on anything to do with blockchain or Web3 gaming. And very quickly, I can evaluate opportunities based on the the team's individual members and what types of actual gaming experience that they do have, right? And so, you know, going through and flipping through that kind of a page and realizing that not a single person has gaming experience is an easy way to kind of discount or at least discredit this opportunity just because game design in and of itself and by itself is extremely difficult. I think, you know, there's a little bit of a power law distribution when you think about gaming in general, 80 to 90% of all web two games are economic failures. They don't recoup their wow. development costs. They don't recoup their marketing costs. And so if you were to extrapolate that to Web3, it actually goes from 80 to 90 percent to 98 to 99 percent of all Web3 games are economic failures to the same degree. You know, and, and Web3 has proven one thing, which is that NFTs are easily the most successful, not, not, not for being able to produce games, but the easily the most successful fundraising model for, you know, hopes and dreams that has ever that has ever occurred because you can globally say i'd like to produce a triple a game here's my concept for the game here's a, a beautiful white paper and all these other things but if you actually took a second look at the team none of them have any experience they don't they don't even know anyone that can produce a triple a game um and right now you know even the triple a studios are scrambling and dying with major revenue to find people that understand how to build inside these things. So it, it, it makes your job much harder when you've got every one of your friends, family, you know, relatives going, Hey, this is, here's the, here's the next, uh, you know, uh, you know, game of anything, um, that you've got to now weed through and go like, okay, it's great that they're in college and it's great that they have a concept and they know how to deploy an NFT. Who's going to build this thing? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I'm a little bit of a, of a, a quote-unquote black sheep within Galaxy because I think right when I started, I said very much up front, hey, guys, listen, on Web3 Gaming, on blockchain gaming, this was back in, back in May, I'm very much near-term bearish but long-term bullish. And I'm near-term bearish because, very frankly, all of the games that I've seen that are quote-unquote popular, I personally have never had a strong desire to play myself. And if you don't have that one kind of component in gaming, you've pretty much, you've pretty much lost the thread. There's really no point to, to kind of continue as an ongoing concern because you haven't really activated your community for the long term, which I think is really critical in almost every successful gaming franchise that's out today. Yeah, so, and I completely agree, and, and I'm really excited for this conversation to continue. Um, you know, so as we transition, and I really want to hear kind of, you know, Galaxy and, and how you guys are, are thinking about the space. But when I look at, at blockchain and, and Web3, it is the most dynamic change that can come to gaming that doesn't actually have to build the games. You know, a game that runs on blockchain, like literally running on like decentralized servers is, is, is insane. There's, you know, latency is a huge thing, you know, unless you're talking role-playing games. But if you want to get like a first-person shooter, like 
that that's a whole business model in and of itself that that has nothing to do with blockchain um, you know compared to assets and identities and all those things so so what are you know what are some of the concepts that that galaxy is really focusing on that are absolutely you know kind of guaranteed almost not guaranteed, nothing's guaranteed but but have the highest viability of success uh, to integrate with current AAA level games yeah no it's a, it's a good question I would actually point to anything related um, to cheat detection when it comes mm. to online competitive gaming, right? Okay. And so there are several companies out there that use you know either public or private ledger technology in order to identify okay these specific players. If you were to cross reference, you know their current login with their history of playing, have shown signs of cheating in past games either by replicating the you know the activity or. The, the, the move sets of an AI or a computer-generated player, mm. right? Which means that they have some type of AI assistance or by just playing in a tournament in which their level is just so much higher than everyone else's, implying that they actually should be in a higher level tournament than another party. And so the whole realm of gaming infrastructure that has real utility, I think, is really where Galaxy in particular is doubling down. But it's really about improving the experience of gamers overall. One easy way to do so is to identify the cheaters and kind of strip them out of the gaming experience for the average player who wants to have a genuinely authentic competitive experience. Yeah, and, and and same as you, I I'm I'm a lifelong gamer. Um, you know, my my first experience to Bitcoin was as actually playing Eve Online. Um, and if anyone has ever played uh, Eve Online, it's also referred to spreadsheets in space. Um, it can be it can be extremely boring at times where you're just spending hours sitting around doing nothing. And that was where somebody you know was talking about Bitcoin. And and you know, early 2010, I bought uh, you know 100 of them for 20 dollars off of them. And you know, a bunch of us did as we were floating around. And you know, it was, it was an interesting concept of digital money. Um, but it didn't shake out. That being said, you know, coming forward, I, I play Call of Duty right now with uh, with my teenage boys, and I and and I'm absolutely horrible um, at it. But I can instantly see where a AAA game like Call of Duty and the Call of Duty franchise is so fractured. Mm-hmm. You know that that you you know it does not from from game to game to game of just the one franchise. It does not recognize you know me as a player. Um, that I, I have different assets in different games. It doesn't recognize, you know, that I've played this game before, and, and these are you know, compatible items. And even if the game studio says, "Look, we never want you to take your guns and give them or sell them on a on a secondary market," we can see that the future is very capable for that to happen in, in a go forward uh, capability to allow for for a secondary market to exist of of weapons and third party, you know, assets and games and skins and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the the challenge, though, is that gamers, as, as you're very well aware, are probably not only the, the most fickle uh, entities, but also the most vocal. And so it's, 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 a, it's a thing that, you know, comes up again and again where, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. The, there was a huge amount of outrage against the incorporation and integration of NFTs into a lot of the online shooter games in particular. So um, the Ubisoft's, uh, Ubisoft's titles come up um, for me, but the, the outrage was, hey, you know, we have these different methods of monetizing our players that you guys are already using in order to extract rents from us through microtransactions, through battle passes, through downloadable content. We don't want another layer of rent seeking added on top of that, which, you know, quite frankly, is very similar to the outrage that happened back in the the mid to late 2000s about we don't want this free to play mechanic on top of our existing games. 
But here we are in 2023, and free-to-play is, is really kind of a household concept for most folks where they understand that, hey, it's actually very beneficial to have uh, a gaming experience that you can try out first before buying cosmetics, skins, weapons that can perhaps increase the, the the utility of the game for myself. I think the same thing is probably going to happen, if not already happening, when it comes to the use of NFTs in gaming today. So when when we really think about, you know, there's been a lot of guesses on on where Web3 and, and gaming are going to intersect. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen some of them play out. We saw Axie Infinity, which is all on chain, all, you know, you, you play it for five minutes and you're bored. Um, but people played for days and days and days because you could actually play to earn. You could play to live. And there was people in, in third world countries that were making, you know, more money um, sitting on, on on a dirt road, you know, with, with a, a five, ten dollar little, you know, uh, Android device than they were in in fields, you know, working hard labor or sweatshops. And so I, mm-hmm. I entirely applaud the concept that somebody can learn a, a, a skill that does not put them in harm's way. And by the way, most of those, they had education to help them understand how to grow, you know, inside of, of, of Axie Infinity and create guilds and, and use DeFi and, and, and learn finance. And so I thought from kind of an education standpoint in a way to help really elevate, I, I loved the concept, um, hated the execution. Um, but what was your kind of feelings over, you know, Axie's run, you know, kind of up and down uh, lessons along the way. Yeah, I mean the the one critical lesson that I remember from the very kind of beginning of just watching YouTube videos about Axie Infinity because that's my first access point in terms of buying a new game is does this even look like it's fun to play? And you know, from my perspective, the answer was clearly no. This doesn't look like it's very fun. I didn't even try to buy one of the the, um, the axes in order to participate in the ecosystem. It seemed a little bit convoluted. And for me, that is really the trigger point of saying, hey, this is something that actually has legs and has longevity versus not. I'm not surprised by the fact that a lot of people you know, jumped onto the Axie bandwagon in the first place because it tends to attract folks that are looking for uh, a fast come up, so to speak, or looking for a quick way to generate an ROI for themselves. But you know, there's a little bit of a asymmetrical distribution between the people that are benefiting from the ecosystem in a normal way and those that are seeking to exploit it and exploit the distribution of digital assets within that ecosystem as much as possible, almost in kind of a mercenary-like capacity. I think you saw a lot of that with Axie Infinity. I think it, you know, in another sense, it degraded the experience for every other player who were either trying to make money or just have fun overall. And so I think the key lesson there is when you are trying to open up an economy for the, the public, the broad public market, you have to have some controls in place to protect against mercenary players that are exploiting the existing, you know, sink and faucet mechanisms when it comes to, you know, the distribution of some of these new digital assets. And and, and none of these concepts are new. They're just they're worked right. out a little differently in Web three, you know, and and traditional games. And you can go back to Dungeons and Dragons. You can go back to to any of these things. There's always a, a gray market or a black market um, for accounts and games. And and in fact, you know, I, I don't League of Legends and everywhere else. There's entire you know uh, shops of of kids that are sitting over in third world countries or or sometimes first world countries. It can be anywhere um, that are just leveling up leveling up random players and then selling the entire account, um, you know, through, through eBay or, or a variety of sources. And it really doesn't, you know, scale, it doesn't work and it's very unsafe and, and kind of degrades a lot of, like you say, around the game because they're, they're, 
very predatory in nature. The concept is if you, you know, with Axie and others, is if you create a proper marketplace using smart contracts, NFTs, that everyone can win, that the, the buyers are, are secure, they get what they want, the, the game studio gets a cut of the, 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 um, the, uh, the sale, and, and the seller, whoever, you know, leveled them up, you know, kind of has a reason to be there and, and, and they feel good about creating value for themselves or for others. Um, it, how close am I to, to reality on that? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And the, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that, you know, the, the progenitors of what we understand crypto to be today, they all used to gold farm. They all used to experience farm. They all used to use, you know, Warcraft or EVE Online or RuneScape um, to first understand economic principles, market mm-hmm. principles, and migrated that understanding into what we're now describing as Web3. And so I think that there is a huge educational component uh, that's a part of that that you actually never you never lose, right? And it can be applied to so many different domains, which is kind of a phenomenal thing to think about. You know, this we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for gaming and some of the things that you can do in gaming and exchanging, you know, in-game time and experience for some type of economic value. That's, I mean, a great, great thought. So with, jumping back over to Galaxy, you know, what's kind of your biggest initiatives, um, you know, right now that, that are, you know, underneath your, your platform of gaming? What's kind of the major initiatives of things you're looking for? Um, and, and really, you know, either you're succeeding in finding them or you're kind of like, these don't exist yet, but we hope that they do so. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think one of the biggest initiatives is really locating games and Web3 games in particular that have successfully integrated Web3 functionality or you know crypto functionality without detracting from the overall gaming experience. I think that there are two major criteria that we that we really look at. Number one, can this game, is this game fun without any type of um, overlay when it comes to either implementing wallets or exchanging crypto or fiat off-ramp? Off ramp? Is this game just fundamentally fun? Right. And then number two, can this game survive and thrive in, you know, what we were in previously, which is a bear market. Right. Because, you know, it's very easy for all tides to to all ships to rise if the tide is very high in a bull market. But the games that are sustaining themselves today in what is arguably, you know, one of the worst markets in crypto in a long time are the ones that can probably sustain themselves for the long term and also have the strongest communities behind them as well. So it's re- it's really a focus on kind of those two elements. And there's always questions around yield sustainability. If you have some type of staking mechanism, there's questions around, you know, how do you, you know, build an authentic community as opposed to you know, attracting mercenaries. And so there's a lot of different questions, you know, that we ask in the near term, but it, it really is about, you know, how do we make this experience fun for everyone? Oh, great, great, great answer. I love that. So um, I, let's circle back around to the, the term you just said, community, um, which to me is is the largest or one of the largest factors of Web3 that really doesn't exist. It exists in, in Web1 and Web2, but in, in mm-hmm. Web3, it's a dynamic change because yeah. your community is generally your investors. They're generally your shareholders. They're, they, they are help driving this project and product with you because you have the ability to ask questions and get feedback and, and mm-hmm. engage with them. How do you measure... Um, or, or even come about really understanding the community behind some of these games? Yeah, I, listen, I, I really love that question. I actually would disagree with you on, on the definition of a community. Um, I, I guess first and foremost, for me, when I think about a community, I think about myself playing you know, Pokemon or Smash Brothers or Goldeneye. It's been, I don't know, 20 years since I started playing those games. But if I were to pick them up today, I would still be able to play them. I would still 
roughly understand the dynamics of what's going on. I would still be able to engage with a 10-year-old kid who wanted to play me in Super Smash Brothers, and we would have a pretty good match and pretty good challenge. And what I'm implying by that is that you have a very, very long-term perspective, and you have an anticipation that you're going to be in this ecosystem in some capacity, either a lot or a little bit, for a long period of time. I would actually argue that you know the structure of certain investments within my within my ecosystem is such that it doesn't encourage people to be in it for the long haul. And so a really good example of that would be, you know, a lot of a lot of crypto focused or crypto centric investors, they have a much shorter path to liquidity uh, when you compare it to traditional venture capital and growth equity. So for them, you know, for them, it's it's very attractive to receive some type of you know compensation or some type of return in the form of tokens that have a 12 month cliff. And then those same tokens are vesting over, you know, a 12 to 36 month period of time. Now that the implication, you know, from my perspective in that kind of a structure is, all right, they start generating a return from um, their investment in year one and then across the subsequent two to three years. But after that three year point, they've essentially returned their investment. Right. And so the question that I always ask is, can you really build a company that is built to last over a three year period. Could you build Amazon over three years versus the 10 to 15 years it actually took to kind of get that engine roaring at the end of the day? Very different from you know the, the traditional kind of venture equity time horizon where you actually don't even have an opportunity to receive a return until year five or year seven or year 10, depending on your, your fund life. And so those guys are quote unquote in it to win it because if their investment, if their company fails in which they put in an investment, then that's really just riding off the entire investment. So they're encouraged to actively participate in kind of the strategic direction of those companies, actively engage with the management teams, actively try to find solution to ensure that this company is successful. So long story short, you know, if you have a mixture, I think it's better. But if it's strictly token based, I think you know you 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 end up with a lot of folks that are able to kind of cut and run, you know, three four years down the line, which you can't really build, in my opinion, a very strong, long lasting company over that period of time. I, what everyone just listened to was a master's course, um, and, <laughs> and, and built and and truly, it it really that that's it's so detailed and so so thought out. What. The answer you just gave, and I want to really kind of draw attention to the audience that they're listening. Um, you know, go back and listen to what Jeffrey just said again, um, because it is a dynamic change. The the ability to have investors exit as the second the game launches um, and pull liquidity away from the operators and and from you know what what you know that launching a game. Congratulations, you just made it to the starting line. Exactly. <laughs> like, like now we have to go like grow and expand and everything else. And if you have too much liquidity sucked out right at the beginning as a as an entrepreneur and, and a CEO, like that's that's terrifying. That's horrifying. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we can do around it. But I you know I really agree with that answer around community and, and continuing that engagement and keeping them excited and investing with them. Um, yeah. What? I, I, um, oh, please keep going. No, I, I was going to add that you know you you see it with certain. Web2 game properties that have been in a funding mode for almost 10 years now. Star Citizen, I'm a huge, you know, space sim geek. And so they're they're a, a Kickstarter-based game development studio. They're huge at this point. They haven't yet released a game, but they are very actively engaged with their community in terms of building new games, you know, building more rich 
renders and higher fidelity experiences over the long term, while that in and of itself is, is something that you, you don't see as much in kind of a Web3 ecosystem. Now, on the flip side, if I were to ever see an investment come down my pathway that says, hey, the cliff doesn't start until year four or year five, and then invests rateably over the next two to four years, that's a completely different situation, right? Because you're in it, you know, to win it, you're, you have a ton of skin in the game, and you can't really see a return at all until you get to that, that later period of your, of your existing hold. Yeah, and and a four year cliff for any you know professional VC, we're like, oh, we get out early, really? <laughs> like you're, exactly. letting, you're letting us out before year seven and eight. That that's that's a fabulous uh, deal there. Exactly. Um, so so sometimes, and I think this is always important. There's a lot of people that build some really amazing projects, uh, Web two, Web three, like I mean, gorgeous, uh, amazing, you know, projects, products, um, deploy them, and they're absolutely fabulous, and they were built for a market of zero. Mm-hmm. Um, no one cares. They they fail. You know, initially die on the vine because they they were built in a silo that nobody wanted, uh, wanted that or needed that. I I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that's gaming. Um, and and you're really the one that understands it. What is you know kind of the current total market cap of gaming, and where do you see that elevated? Because I and to preface the the reason for the ask is I've seen um, that that gaming will overtake you know hot, you know TV and and movies. Um, you know whether it already has or is going to soon, and that's a big dynamic shift into why, you know, blockchain and Web3 is, is so attractive to integrate um, into game. Yeah, no, we've, we, my team has done a lot of research into this. And, you know, I think if you look at the gaming market uh, holistically, there's a lot of different ways that you can, you can kind of slice that. I think the, the, the broadest consensus is around a current market today of about 180 billion to 200 billion growing at about a 10% kicker. Right. Okay. And so this is just strictly kind of Web 2 gaming, no Web 3 gaming overlay. I would imagine that over time, that slice that is the Web 3 section is or segment is going to get larger and larger and will definitely grow at, you know, 10 plus, 20 plus percent kager over the next 10 years. And so that's kind of the way that I like to, to size the opportunity. But you're right in that gaming has already eclipsed music and film when it comes to revenue generation. So we, you know, we put together some materials, one page or one slide of it has gaming at about $184 billion for 2022. I think music and film together is less than, I want to say, $120 billion in total, right? And if you think about gaming as like the pinnacle interactive entertainment experience, you have your linear media elements, you have your interactive elements, you have music already there, you have acting already there, in a lot of cases for the AAA titles. And so it actually encapsulates what you're seeing for a lot of the other, you know, modalities of entertaining yourself in some of these other platforms. So a concept I want to talk to you about, and I think you'll probably, uh, you know, hopefully we can geek out on this a little bit and you'll get excited is... Generally, if if you know I ran into you at a at a conference, uh, you know, a restaurant or anything else, one of the last things we'd ever bring up in random conversation is gaming. But it really is so important to even you know, like I'm I'm in my mid forties, and like I would love to talk about games. I love I, I love it. I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's really one it's much more engaging to to play a game than it is to passively sit and watch a movie or a streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the concepts. That, that we're seeing happen right now is that Web3 is such an emerging class that nobody really understands. It's, it's you know, and you see this as well. Someone's like, hey, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to solve the same problem over here and, and nothing connects, nothing aligns. But the concept of like, I 
digital ownership, digital identity, that like, this is me. And then I, 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 I don't want to go hunt things down. I'm never going to say, Hey, Jeffrey, check out my, my Microsoft, uh, you know, Xbox account, you know, in my LinkedIn page or anything else. But the concept that as I earn Xbox, you know, points or Sony or anything else, that it comes into a, a centralized digital lifestyle box mm-hmm. subtly means that as I'm interacting with people that, that AI or a variety of other metrics and say, hey, you're getting ready to meet with Jeffrey for a podcast. By the way, both of you guys have over 50 hours in this game. Both of you guys have traveled to these three cities. And suddenly, instead of having to seek it out and, and do random conversations, like this all exists. It's just hidden in these digital warehouses by yeah. companies that, that they own it instead of you and I, which is where the value really should be created. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally right. You know, it's funny. I'm on my teams. I, I really prefer to, to uh, work with juniors that have gaming experience. Right. And so if you think about your your wallet address as an, a tracker of your online reputation and exposure to gaming. Right. It's a perfect use case where if I'm hiring for somebody that actually has legit experience in esports or in this type of Web3 game, then I can quickly look at the leaderboards and just say, all right, this person has clearly 1,200 hours. That's the type of experience that just by virtue of osmosis, they will be a value add to my ecosystem you know, from, from day one. And so I think that that's absolutely right. Yeah, and I think that you know it's one of those things, especially with millennials and Gen Z growing up. Where you know, you know, I, I was a Nintendo kid and, and grew from there. Um, but but the concept of you know LinkedIn right now, it, it's great, it's fabulous. Um, you know, we, we can say did were we did we work at any of the same companies? Have we worked in the same asset class? Did we go to the same schools? And and those are all the commonalities in the business world. But nothing like that exists for gamers. And and as you right. said, you're, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are generated, um, but they're siloed and kept really secret because you know secret because the companies believe that that's their IP, that that's they own these clients. How how do we get to the point where we can have something that actually brings gaming into the forefront and stops treating it like, you know, my parents, you're like, oh my God, you're going to rot your brain. Like, how do we make this a real societal feature? Yeah, I mean, one one theory that has actually achieved some success is this whole concept of, of transmedia. And, mm-hmm. and by transmedia, it's really about taking gaming IP that it has a, a TAM of gamers, right? And let's, let's give an example of a zombie game. So taking the IP of a zombie game and trying to engage a much broader audience, so a much larger TAM, by having that IP almost transformed into different formats. And so by different formats, I mean not just in video games, not just on mobile devices or consoles or PCs, but let's actually make it a television show. Let's make that IP a movie, right? Let's make that IP part of a theme park you know, activation event. Let's make that IP part of kind of an experiential room that you have to survive waves and waves of zombies that are attacking you. And so you you increase and you expand the addressable market by doing that because perhaps somebody is intrigued by, you know, that, you know, zombie experience, but they just don't want to learn how to use a game controller, right? It's a little bit of a barrier to entry um, for them, or they just don't want to, you know, try to figure out how to install a game on their iPhone. Right, a good, a great example of this is The Last of Us, which mm-hmm. started off as a gaming IP. It's a Sony exclusive, and they've come up with the TV show through a collaboration with HBO that has received very kind of critical acclaim, and has dramatically broadened the audience of people who can say, "Oh wow, this is this was a gaming project originally. Let me actually 
make the leap and try to play the game just to see exactly what's out there. So it works in both directions as a feedback loop by expanding, you know, by introducing gaming content into non-gaming formats, you're actually also increasing the size of the gaming pie itself, which to your question is the best way that you can bring it into the forefront. Because if you have critically acclaimed actors working in gaming prop properties, that means gaming is much more a part of or a stronger part of the cultural kind of zeitgeist of what's important and what's kind of leading, you know, our, you know, our minds or our subconscious today. I, I, I absolutely, and we're going to have to expand on that at maybe a later podcast and really talk through it. Cause it's a concept that I think most people don't understand is, and, and let's just give board apes the credit that they kind of really have pushed uh, the hardest into this. You know, if you buy a board ape and, and the IP is still a little fuzzy and they're, they're messing with it a little bit, but you yeah. know, we're not, we're not going to get into that a little bit today, but the concept is you can buy a board ape and theoretically you own that IP. You can, you can, that's your brand. You can, you can create a movie on it. Uh, I think Seth Rogen or one of these guys was going to create a TV show yep. uh, based on his and then it got stolen and literally <laughs> doesn't own the IP anymore because it's gone and, and yeah. he couldn't get it back. Yeah. But the concept is, is that there's, there's a metaverse, there's a video game, there's TV shows that, that you're saying, look, this is a common thing that I identify my, myself as without my picture. Um, but I own this IP and I can lease it. I can license it. I can do everything else. Um, it, does that scale? Does that you know? Should people focus more on you know? Most of these these NFT projects are you know they don't you don't actually own the IP in any way, shape, or form. Should more uh, companies be selling the uh, the asset and the IP um, and the rights copyright to it? Yeah, so it, it's it's a gray area as you mentioned. I, I think a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of major corporates, are very hesitant to provide uh, monetization opportunities for their IP to folks that are not them, right? And so the lack of clarity has worked out in the favor of the consumer today, but I think that over time as this sector matures, more than likely, it's, they're going to start coming down, um, come down the hatchet with very large legal teams trying to say, hey, you guys cannot monetize this IP. That being said, I think that it does scale if corporates themselves are just saying, wait a minute, you know, even though this was not authorized, they were able to sell 200,000 uh, 200, NFT collection based on this particular avatar that we own. Maybe we should try to do something like that ourselves. That's also linked to some of our new releases in terms of new products, maybe kind of a new type of soda or even new franchise extensions. And so maybe you have a sequel or a prequel coming out for a movie or a TV show and you want that to coincide with the launch of an NFT collection. That actually is a really good way to further activate, and if you wanted to further monetize your base of consumers in a completely different format and also build community amongst people that can say, hey, I have one of 20 NFTs that's related to XYZ property, for example. I love that. That's fabulous. How, um, who, who's really the market? For blockchain games, is is it is is it us or are we really focused on kind of the Gen Z? You know, the, it's a it's very different. You know, where we spend our time. Um, you know, and and you know, my I've got a 15 year old, and he has no interest in a bank account. All him and his friends have you know Solana wallets. They generally use Phantom. They they send assets back and forth. They like the Solana ecosystem. Um, you know, so it seems like they're already blockchain natives. Are, are, are we kind of just building this for them, or do we think that we're going to be able to onboard, you know, the the, the uh, Gen X and others? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the burden lies in the developer community, for better or for worse, and it's really about 
the question of to get to that mass market consumer, do we really need all these different steps and all these different details in terms of signing up for a wallet address? Do I really need to remember this 21 word code and just keep that somewhere tucked away, not on the internet, in a bank vault somewhere? Or is there a way to kind of simplify and reduce the amount of friction that currently exists for a lot of these different Web3 enabled uh, apps or games or experiences or what have you, right? I think that's really the critical question. If that is something that can be overcome, then the market is as big as the market is today for any type of Web2 opportunity or game or title or, or entertainment experience. And it's really, you've been successful in, you know, reducing the amount of visibility of some of these Web3 aspects so that the, the normal mom and pop or grandpa or grandma can actively engage with this without the complication that is like that first wave of, you know, Web3 functionality. That makes it more difficult than it needs to be in a lot of cases. It's kind of like trying to install, you know, a, a very sophisticated space sim on your computer and having to manipulate, you know, the different system parameters to make sure that it runs versus having some having a console that you can yep. just plug a disk in and you can play the game. That's pretty much what the difference is. It, it's it's very early Web one, you know, where Correct. I generally refer to, you know, the the ledger's minds around here somewhere as, as like a fourteen K modem. Like, yeah. it's it's horrible, it's stupid, it's a terrible <laughs> experience. But the, if you want to if you want to do it, that's what you got to use. Yeah. Um, and we're going to evolve into into higher speeds, and there's going to be special chips into all these computers, and, and we've already seen HTC building them into the phones, um, you know, to be able to manage these things. So I think we're definitely going to get there. Um, I, I always wonder, you know, is it what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the game or is it the technology? You know, because to me, it seems like, you know, Axie had the game and the technology together just that showcased it could work. Um, mm -hmm. but, but every attempt, you know, from Fluff World, Alluvium, you, you name it, um, just has failed to garner any, you know, real adoption past, you know, their initial mints and, and deployments. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, the question I ask myself is are those titles, are those games, are those virtual experiences too complicated? to start with for the mass market consumer? Or should we build, be building something that kind of leapfrogs off of existing, you know, gameplay dynamics that everyone already understands, like fantasy sports, for example. There's a lot of people that are very excited about fantasy sports. Is there a way to just incorporate kind of Web3 functionality into, into that kind of experience so that you can actually draw in some of the, you know, the older, you know, Web2 denizens that are super, you know, fans of football or baseball or, or, or basketball or what have you. Yeah, and, and we really haven't even touched on, you know, fantasy sports and other things, you know, like silks and, and their, uh, you know, kind of um, fantasy horse racing, those kind of things. So we'll, exactly. that, we'll save that for another day. All right, so I got a, I got a big question for you. So you're, you're familiar with this device, which is uh, Zuckerberg's failed. Uh, it might, my, my, my 11-year-old won't even put this on. He's like, he, li <laughs> he likes the cheap one. He likes the little $300 one. He hates this thing. Yeah. Um, Zuckerberg calls you and goes, dude, Jeffrey, this I failed at the metaverse. Nothing works. I'm going to give you $10 billion to fix it. What would you do? $10 billion to fix. So I would probably say, I would look at the origin of Facebook. How did Facebook become popular in the first place? It became a platform and a channel that, you know, allowed you to kind of take a view into the life as just a regular college student of your friends and even, you know, frankly, unfortunately stock a lot of people that you might be interested in right and so you know what is the common denominator in that really just getting that mass market 
um, approval or mass market interest and engagement for something that they would traditionally do. I would try to, if I were going down the path of creating a device, it wouldn't be a 100% immersive 3D experience. It would definitely be an augmented reality experience. And I would try to make the glasses themselves, if we were going to use that form factor, or if it was going to be contact lenses or even something even less uh, less ostentatious or, or kind of less obtrusive, I would try to make it as close to what people would normally wear as possible and just pump as much research and development expense into achieving that. Getting that form factor correct and not even introducing it as a Web3 metaverse device. Introducing it as a device to make your life easier in this incremental fashion. It's kind of like with the iPhone, right? You started off with the iPhone, not you know, a tremendous number of apps. The apps came later once you had the, the box in front of you and then developers can kind of think, all right, we have user engagement. Now we need something for those users to do at the same time. And it was a new form factor. People didn't know what to do with it or how to build with it. And, and even Apple, when they came out, didn't know how to put games on it. They go, answer the phone, send a text. You know, you can look at a couple of websites. You know, that, that's it. You know, take a picture. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, the, the thought of FaceTime, the thought of file sharing, the thought of anything that we do on a, on a modern, uh, you know, iPhone is, is really irrelevant or, or wasn't even thought of back that day. Um, jumping, you know, kind of just really quickly touching back on on the metaverse and, and the side of things. I, I've always felt, and per what you just said, that the concept of Ready Player One, that you're going to put on a headset, go into a dark thing, put on a suit, and you're going to run around in, in, in some virtual environment, is is a long ways away, and in fact, it may never it may never actually appear, um, just because that's not the way humans want to operate. It's it's very hard to have something in front of your face. Mm-hmm. But I think Free Guy, um, which showcase you put the glasses on, and it augments everything. You look exactly. at a sign, and it comes alive. You look at a person, and it's giving you information, which was what Google Glass was trying to do. But you know that was what ten years ago. Yeah. What what's the, what's the barrier to get that working? The form factor. I think that's really the hardest thing to do, right? If you if you try to make it as small as possible, then it's going to use a tremendous amount of energy and you're going to have a literal oven on your own head. If you don't care as much about the form factor, it turns into, you know, the, the VR device, the Oculus, or it turns into Google Glass. And then that means that you walk into somewhere with this augmented reality device and like people will literally punch you in the face because they think that you're recording them, right? Yeah. And you're like invading their privacy. So I think getting the form factor right and getting it accepted by the mainstream society is probably going to be the, the the biggest barrier and it's it's something that apple is very or at least has been historically very very good at where you know form follows uh function follows form in all cases but it's just very hard to do today with the limitations quote unquote of technology that we do have are we going to be able to get to a place where you can have very minimal non-obtrusive lenses that have either augmented reality vision or virtual reality vision that you can actually dial in and out of, I highly think that that's going to happen before 2030. But it's also one of those things that is it going to be a, a relevant technology 10 years from now, where 10 years ago, people were saying that that's going to be something that's de jure today, right? So the question is, is there enough, is there a large enough market that is willing to pay for those types of devices? We'll, we'll have to see, but we're making incremental progress, at least as far as I can tell. Love it. Love it. Jeffrey, um, you know, I am just absolutely amazed by really the, the scope and breadth of what you understand gaming and you also understand, you know, companies and infrastructure and what it takes to bring a game to market. Um, we, we know that gaming is going to continue to increase, whether that's, you know, Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 games. It's, it's 
people want to play. They want to feel engaged and a little bit less, you know, passiveness just sitting on the couch uh, like a slug watching content. They like being engaged. They like that con- the, the thought of theirs, especially uh, the, the millennials and Gen Zs, which is we've seen that, you know, clear increase uh, in gaming. Where's kind of just your thoughts over the next few years of, of kind of the trends that, that potentially you see um, really surprising people that maybe come out of, of nowhere? Well, one big one is not, is not necessarily a positive trend. And the, the trend is that there might be a little bit of a, of a dip in gaming engagement. Mm. Right. And depending on how you look at it, if you were to do a survey of some of the major gaming industry news today, all you see are a lot of headlines around the fact that Activision Blizzard, yes, was acquired, but had so many different cultural issues going on kind of under the hood. Ubisoft is canceling games left and right. And there's a ton of issues there as well when it comes to are they able to produce the same high level quality AAA game that they had in the past? Games these days are are suffering from, if you were to listen to the average gamer, an issue of excessive monetization, either through free-to-play or battle passes or downloadable content. You have so many different gates of having to put down your credit card in order to have a genuine gaming experience, if you can even call it that at that point. And so the other issue is the games that are being released today are actually being released in a very unfinished capacity. Right, and so great examples of that. There's a game called Anthem um, by EA, completely unreleased, seven years in development, and was uh, an economic failure. If we talk about economic failures, it was economic failure in and of itself. A game I was very passionate about was called Cyberpunk 2077. So think, you know, Blade Runner in a video game format, also in development for a long period of time, thirteen years in that game. In that case, it came out and it was almost completely unplayable. I pre-ordered the game itself and played it for 15 minutes, took the game out, didn't play it for a full year later, right? So there's all these different factors that are suggesting that players themselves are getting fatigued by the gaming experience. There are certain things that are helping to increase momentum to, to prevent that from happening. But I think if we were to take a step back and say, all right, if we really want gaming to thrive and to survive, how do we do that? We do that by increasing engagement. What's one easy way to increase engagement? By having the users themselves be game developers, right? So user-generated content, not just of cosmetics, but also gameplay and gameplay mechanics. How can you empower the average user with a limited set of skills to build very sophisticated games that are on par with the AAA studios, the, the Activisions, the Blizzards, the Bungies of the world? And, you know, one place that I don't know if you touch on, but I'm increasingly trying to, you know, have this category under the Web3 umbrella is AI. AI, right? <laughs> so, yep. 100%. I, we're, we're on board. It's an AI. AI is a Web3 technology. All right. I'm right there with you. I've tried to convince my, my, own, uh, my own peers, but, you know, I, I think it's probably the next evolution where you can create procedurally generated characters, procedurally generated stories, procedurally generated environments to the point where eventually, and this is anywhere from 2025 to 2030, you can go from you know pure text to pure gaming experience where you're waking up in the morning, you had some amazing dream about you know some very fanciful alien invasion that involved 
who knows what, you write that down into the equivalent of a game developer's chat GPT, and within minutes or hours or however long it takes, you have a full-fledged game that comes out of that, right? And so that's really kind of the, the apex of what the future could look like. If everyone is a gamer, then, or everyone is a game developer, then no one is, right? Which is part of the problem. And it's also an issue of um, discoverability. Mm-hmm. Netflix is having this problem. Every streaming service is having this problem. How, if you have so many different games and so many different titles that are out there, how do you distinguish them? How do you market them, right? How do you go from a great gaming experience to a great economic um, outcome for this gaming experience? Those are questions I don't have the answer to. Um, but you know, we'll see what happens over the next over the next five to ten years. I love that, and and you know, fabulous answer. And, and yes, by the way, tell everyone uh, AI is is a through technology. <laughs> you don't need a whole asset class because to me, I, I really do say that blockchain is a database designed for computers. It, yep. Blockchain is not designed for humans. I, we can we can fudge around in it, but we're not very good at it. Um, you have to be all seen, all knowing every seconds of of any transaction or any thought, um, and that's where AI is best. And, and blockchain is, in my opinion, built and will be continued to be built for you know customizable AI bots, um, which which you know in, in our in the gaming world you don't want because uh, they're generally aim bots and, and they ruin the experience. Uh, but in the development cycle, you know, speed speed to market and and quality um, control are are huge, massive places that we can just. Um, every gamer would benefit around the world from having that technology integrated. And um, one day, I hope the holodeck, uh, you know, absolutely appears, and we can just say, "Hey, I, I want to go, you know, shoot, uh, you know, zombies on a beach," uh, and you know, you walk in, and there you go, make it happen. So yeah. uh, I love this, Jeffrey. Um, real quick, how uh, can people kind of really follow along with with Galaxy, what you guys are doing, or or if they want to invest with you guys, what's uh, what, what's the next steps? Yeah, next steps. Uh, feel free to to email me. Um, you know, my, my email address is jeffrey.uba at galaxy.com. So happy to, happy to share that. And, you know, we have a, a pretty active social media presence. I think it's Galaxy HQ um, on Twitter, but feel free to, to follow that. My presence is not very active. Um, personally, I need to change that. And so I think ChatGPT is going to come in, come in handy there and, and generating <laughs> new, new content uh, on a daily basis. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, those would be the, the, some of the best pathways to do so. Fabulous. Uh, Wells. this is uh, Jeffrey with Galaxy and formerly Galaxy Digital or whatever they, you guys are calling it, um, but really excited for the future, really excited for where you guys are going. Uh, excited to have you back uh, soon, and we'll talk about, again, a rapidly evolving asset class. That being said, Wells. see you guys next time. Wells was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.